Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges there in the Old Testament. Judges chapter 2. Our passage uh, this morning as we look at Judges chapter 2, specifically verses 6 through chapter 3, verse 6. Last week we began a new series entitled Relentless Grace as we are going to be making our way uh, through the month of April through the book of Judges. And so until uh, for these next four months, there will be a couple of interruptions. We're going to be doing a couple of different series uh, related to some of the emphases our own denomination uh, places an emphasis on. Next week, we're going to be looking at Sanctity of Human Life Sunday together. And so, we're going to be looking at that. And then I know in February, we'll be looking at some stuff related to racial reconciliation. So, looking forward to that as well as we consider what God's Word has to say on these particular issues of our day and time. But today, Book of Judges, chapter 2. We'll be looking there together. Let's pray as we consider God's word today. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that we are able to know and worship and serve a God, a God who is not silent, but a God who has revealed himself and revealed for us all that we need to know about you, and how we can live lives worthy of you. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege to sit under your word even now. God, help us. Help us to hear. Help us to listen, Lord, intently with with the purpose of seeing you work in us. Lord, this is not some wasted exercise. But God, help us to see this as part of the means in which you save and part of the means in which you strengthen. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, during the Christmas, uh, during Christmas break, um, I went along with some of our visiting family members and spent a good part of the day down in, uh, up in, down in, up in Washington, D.C., where we went for the purpose of visiting Ford's Theater. How many of you have been to Ford's Theater? Raise your hand. All right, so good, half of you. Um, it's not a plug for Ford's Theater, but that's where we went that day uh, to, uh, to see where President Lincoln was killed, assassinated on uh, that uh, terrible day in April, uh, I think back in 1865. You know, when you visit Ford's Theater, something is striking. You, you, when you go there and you buy or you get the ticket and you go in, you do not go immediately into the theater where there's a park ranger that says, well, there it is. There's where Lincoln was killed. That's not what happens when you go there. If, if you went there and that's all that happened, you were ushered into the theater and the guy said, well, there it is, there's where he was killed. Any questions? That would be quite a letdown, wouldn't it? I mean, especially if you did not know the, the entire story and the plot and the, and the planning and all the events that led up to that dreadful day. Instead, when you go to Ford's Theater, You go into the building and you do not go into the theater itself, the theater proper. First, you are actually taken down into the basement of the building where there is a visitor center of sorts or museum where you actually walk through all of the historical events that led up to Lincoln's presidency, the events during his presidency and certainly during the Civil War and all that led up to that dreadful final moment where he was shot and killed. So after you spend about 35, 40 minutes down there observing and and taking in all that information so that you have a proper overview of what's 
what's going on in the life of this president. Then you're taken upstairs into the theater, and you're sat down, and then a very gifted ranger, or whatever they call them, stands there and gives a 20-minute talk on what happened that day. And it's very interesting. I, I like history, and so it was very interesting to, to hear that and to see that and to understand. I'd been there years ago, and it was good to, uh, to, to hear that again and just see how, how all of that had took place to really lay a foundation for, uh, part of foundation for this nation that, that continued. Um, it, was, it was quite uh, quite a story. But when I think about that, I think about judges. You know, how do you relate the two? Um, because they're not the same events, certainly, and certainly don't have a lot in common. But Judges 2, verses 6 through chapter 3, verses 6, functions kind of like that museum downstairs for Ford's Theater. What you have here is a, an overview, if you will, of what happens in the rest of the story of Judges. It's, it's some, what some call a second introduction to Judges. We had first an introduction last week in chapter one, but now you have sort of this overview explanation of what's going on in the background. And, and not just the background, but what's going on in general in the lives of God's people, so that when you get to the specific Judges, you have an understanding of the overall picture. And so you just think about Judges as kind of that overview film that you would watch at a museum before seeing an actual, uh, actual thing that the museum's talking about, just like Ford's Theater. And so that's really what, what we can think about when we think about Judges chapter two. It's serving as that overview, that information clip, if you will, so that helps us understand uh, better the rest of the book. I wanna pick up reading in Judges chapter two and verse six, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who, who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers and who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, 
going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. What we see here in chapter two and what's clear throughout the rest of the book of Judges is God's chosen people, the very people that he had brought out of bondage in Egypt and through the, 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 the wilderness wanderings and now into the promised land, these very people that he loved, the very people that he had pursued and cared for all the way through, these people now were in a radical downward spiral. They were in full-blown rebellion and unfaithfulness. Indeed, Judges 2, verses 11 and 12 really serves as a summary statement capturing the essence of their condition quite well. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's what had happened. They abandoned God. They had turned their back against him. So here's the question that we're dealing with today. How did the people, how did the people get from Verse six of chapter two to verse 11 of chapter two. How, does that, how, do, how do we go from verse six, which says, when Joshua dismissed the people of Israel, each went to his inheritance and take possession of the land, and the people, verse seven, serve the Lord all the days of Joshua. How do you go from verses six and seven to verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they abandoned the Lord? How do you go from serving the Lord to abandoning the Lord? How does that happen? What in the world is going on? And so that's really the question that we want to seek to answer today. How do you go from being a faithful people to being an unfaithful people? What lessons can we draw from this passage today so that we can reflect in our own hearts individually and, 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 and to an extent corporately so that we do not follow the same path that the people of God followed here in Judges? What does this mean and how did God respond? If anything that we learn in Judges and especially in our passage today, that the road to abandoning the Lord is a very possible road for God's people. And it is a subtle one, but it is a costly one. The road to abandonment is subtle, but it is easy and it is certainly costly. But what leads to this? What leads to this abandonment here in this passage? We could list many, many things today as to as what would take us away from the Lord, but I want us to consider the things that are in this passage that led God's people from being God's people. How did these people who were saved from Israel or Egypt, being God's people now in God's land that he had promised them, just in one generation, now completely forsake all that they had known, or did they? all that God had done for them in the past. How do they forsake this? What leads to this kind of abandonment? And I want us to walk through three observations that leads to abandoning the Lord. And I'm gonna just give them to you up front in case you check out halfway through. You can check back in later today. Number one, they failed to be distinct. Failure number one was a failure to be distinct 
Failure number two, they failed to adequately train the next generation. Failure number three, they, were, they, they had a failure to know God. And we're gonna describe what know God means in point three when we get there. And so they, were, they failed in their distinction, they failed in their training of the next generation, and they failed to know God. Those are the three things that they failed in that we see in this passage that lead, led them to abandonment. Let's consider them one by one. Number one, a failure to be distinct. Israel had come through a lot. Just as a nation, as a people in multiple generations, they, they had come through quite a bit and they did not get to the promised land overnight. They had a 40 year stay over in the wilderness, remember that. And Moses didn't even get to come over because of, because, of, because of some sin he had to even deal with and be held accountable to. And so they didn't get there overnight, nor did they find themselves abandoning God overnight. So this was a time-involved process. And it was clear, and certainly clear from last week as we started the book of Judges, that, that their downfall began in the generation that, that's, that's referred to here as faithful, we could say. In the generation of Joshua that served the Lord. There was failure there. It began there. So again, it didn't start just immediately or come overnight. They might have still served the Lord, but they had not fully obeyed the Lord. We talked about that last week. Their half-hearted commitment to the Lord. They only did half of what the Lord had called them and commanded them to do. They didn't drive out the Canaanites completely. They left them in the lands, many of them. God had required the eradication, the, the complete removal of the Canaanites, partly for their own wickedness. They were not innocent. They were pagans. They were, uh, they were complete rebellion and, and led completely evil lives. And so it was not that these were innocent, precious people that, that just were to be wiped out. No, they, they, they were sinners. They were pagans. And so they, they needed to be removed. But even because of God's command, he wanted his people to possess the land so that they could live out lives that were radically distinct lives as a display for the nations around them. but this didn't happen. And so you need to understand that Judges, you need to get this, Judges is not a Christian version of jihad, okay? Don't, don't think that this is what God calls us to do. Go into places and this is how we evangelize. We just kill them all. It's not that. There was a specific reason. This was a unique part of history and the people of God being formed that God commanded this activity, but they failed to do what God had told them to do. That's the point. They failed to obey God. Israel was to be God's chosen people living radically distinct and holy lives in the land that he had promised them as a testimony to his glory and as an evangelistic way among the nations that surrounded them and they failed miserably. God desires and even demands that his people be a distinct people. He desires and he demands that his people be a distinct people. And yet we know that in even our day and time, we are in a culture surrounded by Canaanites. The truth of the matter is, is that we were all once Canaanites ourselves. We've been saved by God's grace out of that life and now out into a family that is to be a display of God's glory and God's character. And we still live in a culture 
surrounded by ungodliness and idolatry. Again, the purpose of, for Israel driving out the Canaanites was a multifaceted purposes, and uh, it, it included many reasons. And again, one of those reasons was that God's people was to be a holy people in the place that God called them to go, and they did not need any kind of idolatrous distraction. You know, some people like to point to texts like Judges, and they totally, totally blow the point of Judges. They like to go to places like this and say, see, there's examples here in the Bible of God not wanting the people to mingle with other cultures. He didn't want them to intermarry. He was against racial intermarriage or something like that. And they, they just totally missed the context. It has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with righteousness. That was the point. You didn't need these distractions because I want you to be a special people. It tends to be two extreme responses to pagan culture, even in our day and time. Some want to reject and run away from the culture. A lot of extreme fundamentalism teaches this. Reject it, run away from it, prop up legalism in its place. Or others say we should embrace it. That leads to liberalism. Those are two extremes we should avoid. We should not think that we should run and ignore and, 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 and retreat from culture, nor should we totally embrace it. We're called to be a distinct people that engage the culture in a gospel-driven, gospel-centered way. Dr. Russell Moore, he's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, very popular writer today, and a very strong ministry that he has. He said this, he said, people are so afraid in the culture right now that they just want to capitulate and give up Christian truth. And some just want to double down and respond to the world with anger. Friends, we can respond neither, neither way. We, we can't be angry people, hostile in our response to a broken world, but neither can we embrace the world and, and forsake the convictions that God has clearly given us. We should not angrily reject culture, nor should we happily embrace it. We are called to engage it with gospel intentionality. Being a distinct people with a distinct mission, live out lives marked by the faithfulness and character of God as we live lives submitted to Christ so that others around us can see and know him. And yet we often fail to do one or the other. We either embrace it and fall prey and abandon Christian truth, or we, we just surround ourselves with the Christian bubble. And we just wanna protect ourselves and protect ourselves and protect our kids. And we should protect our kids. We need to understand that we're called to engage the Bible talks about how we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be a distinct people. We need radically committed Christians who live clearly distinct lives for the glory of God, and that's exactly what Israel missed. They failed to, to heed the commands of God, and now they were living the consequences of their failure to obey his commands. 
They didn't do what he had said, and now they were facing the consequences. When you think about our own responsibility in our own culture, you cannot compare. Too many Christians try to do this. Do not compare America as if it's the new Israel. Don't do that. That is a misinterpretation of the Bible. We are not the new promised land. We are not. Don't try to equate the two somehow. But rather, we are to live lives that are distinct in the culture in which God has given us, whether we're in America or in Sudan or wherever the Lord places us. And so what we need is radically committed Christians who will engage the culture through business, through politics, through education, through the arts, through music, through relationships, everything you can think of. We need radically committed Christians being in the world as Christians for God's glory, distinct but engaging, not fleeing. That's what we're called to do. They failed to be distinct. That's, that's one of the ways that we begin that road of abandonment the Lord is failing to be what God has called us to be, his people. Number two, failure number two, a failure to adequately train the next generation. It is mind boggling when you read verses 10 and 11, or actually just verse 10. And all that generation, speaking of Joshua, they served the Lord, that's back in, um, back in the verses preceding this, verse seven, that generation were also gathered to their fathers. Next sentence. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. How does that happen? How do you go from a people, even though they were half-hearted in their service, but a people who served the Lord to another generation that didn't even know him? How does this happen? Where is the breakdown? Did Joshua's generation somehow fail to invest in the next generation, or did the next generation just spend too much time texting and on Snapchat? Yes, that's the answer. Now, while we can't lay the entire blame on Joshua's generation, because their children were certainly responsible to respond to the Lord, and they would be held accountable, we can conclude though that there was some failure on behalf of the one generation to the other because this is not an isolated event. This was an entire generation that was now not walking with the Lord. Not just one or two, it was an entire generation. There was a breakdown somewhere. I guess you could say it's an argument from silence but what is made quite clear in this text is that somehow Joshua's generation failed to carry out the instructions they'd already been given. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy chapter six, and just a few books previous to Judges. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four. Some of you know where exactly where I'm going, but Deuteronomy chapter six, this was Moses' sermon, if you will, to the people of God before they went into the promised land. And this is what they were instructed to do in verse four. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And then if you jump to verse 20, it says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, 
We were in Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all the commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So they were called to instruct. They were called to instruct. Proverbs 22, verse six says the same thing. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he shall not depart from it. But all of this is a a sobering reminder, if you will, that while we are called to do Deuteronomy 6 and Proverbs 22, 6, they are not guarantees that there will be 100% success in the next generation. They are guiding principles, not not 100% guarantee. But what I'm saying here is I'm raising the question whether or not they were even engaging in Deuteronomy 6 or later Proverbs 22, verse 6. There was a breakdown. We, We don't know when and we don't know how the ball was dropped between one generation and the next. The text doesn't say. But what we do know is that we have one generation who served the Lord and the next generation that didn't. That's what we do know. Something happened. Listen, if you're a parent, or if you're not yet a parent, you need to get this. We have a clear responsibility to faithfully invest in the next generation. You may not even be a parent or ever be a parent, but you still have part of that responsibility as being part of the church. But we are called to faithfully, parents have that primary commission to invest in the next generation. And we need to do it wisely and carefully. We need to be uncompromising in the truth. We need to be honest and we need to be loving towards the next generation as we seek to do that. You don't need angry parents just forcing truth down their kids' throats. They need to be, they need to be loved and cared for as we yet still hold uncompromisingly to the truth and be honest with them. And friends, listen to this. I want you to hear me clearly. Don't misquote me. It is not ultimately the responsibility of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church to make sure your children end up as faithful servants of the Lord. Nor is it the responsibilities of institutions as great and good as they are like KCA or the liberties in Cedarvilles of the world to make sure that your kids get it. You cannot buy off your responsibility. While these are good, and while certainly the church is part and parcel to God's plan, equipping and training begins in the home. The church exists to help equip parents and come alongside parents, but certainly not to replace them. As you and I are called to pour into our children and, their, and our grandchildren, the generations that follow, we're to instruct them. Listen, I don't know what you think when you hear instruct the next generation. We're not talking about doing mini lectures in the living room, right? And I don't know what, sometimes we think, well, I've got a responsibility to train up the next generation. So we're gonna have equipped classes on Monday nights, kids, at home, right? Get the little podium out and you start unfolding the the lessons and, and that kind of thing. That can be helpful. 
I'm not sure how good they'll respond to that kind of thing, but it can be helpful, but that's not what we're talking about. When you go back to, to read through the, the passage in Deuteronomy, it's talking about a lifestyle, an investment that involves multiple scenarios. Everything becomes a teaching moment. Everything becomes a teaching moment. When you rise and when you lay down, when you go about your way, everywhere you are and all that you're doing, there's not a night of the week or an hour of the week in which you're engaging in instructing the next generation. It includes all aspects of life. So, kind of an example of that. Sophie, our four-year-old, is a very inquisitive little girl. And so the other night in the kitchen, I don't know if it was before or after dinner, she's four, so we, we're actually having a discussion on the atonement. Sophie and I are discussing the atonement of Christ. And that discussion came about not because I gave a mini lecture, not because of that at all. I don't even know how it came about, to be honest with you. She likes to sing, so she was probably singing something and I probably just captured her phrase and asked her what that meant, dealing with Jesus dying for our sins. And so we began to engage about that. And, and she, as a four-year-old, having a hard time understanding the atonement. She don't even know the word atonement. I didn't use that word with her, so don't, don't think I used that kind of language. So I'm saying, okay, Jesus died for our sins. And I'm not saying use this as an example because I think it's a bad example, so I fail sometimes. So I was trying to help her understand the atonement. I said, it's kind of like before God, we deserve a big spanking, and Jesus took the spanking for us. And she thought for a minute, she says, but Daddy, what? If, if Jesus took our spanking, why do you and Mommy still spank me? So, that girl is on her toes. But that is hopefully a conversation that she will remember and, and process and will be able to build upon and I can correct maybe later on in, in that engagement of her. Friends, we are called to invest. We are called to pour into them. And I am not a model example of that. I fail miserably at that often. But we have that responsibility, you can't avoid it. We cannot grow complacent in our responsibility to the next generation because our complacency leads to the next generation's compromise. We're called to engage, we're called to invest. Do not fail, do not fail to tell the story of God's miraculous deliverance that he has provided for his people who were in bondage. Do not fail to remind them, Deuteronomy 6, verses 20 through 25, when your sons and daughters come to you, do not fail to point them back to Christ who is their only hope. Don't fail them. But then number three, a third failure we see in this passage a failure to know God. And you say, well, that's obvious. That's, that's the problem here. The Bible says that this next generation came along that did not know the Lord. Now, don't miss what this is saying. It's not that they were ignorant of God or that they, were to they didn't know anything at all about him. What this means is that they did not know him relationally. Relationally. 
We're told that they did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. This means that they did not have a relationship with him or they, they, they didn't remember his work of deliverance that came before. They had forgotten the story of their deliverance. Friends, it's one thing to know about God, but it's an entirely different thing to know God. That's the problem here. They, they probably went to the Christmas and Easter services with their family. But they just checked out the rest of the time. And the generation preceding them didn't care to follow up, didn't care to invest well in them. They, they probably knew about God and knew about the story. They probably knew Moses. They could probably name Moses. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they, they could do that. But they didn't know God. They didn't celebrate him. They did not revere him. They did not serve him. And you can know a lot about God intellectually, but not truly know God relationally. And there is a huge difference. Satan and his demons know much about God. But they do not know God. Now, a little side note back to parents. We need to be sure that we model what a relationship with God looks like. Failures and all. We need to understand that we are communicating and investing and teaching and instructing through our relationship with God and through pointing the, the next generation to him. We need to make sure that the next generation does not forget the gospel. We need to make sure that the next generation does not forget, unable to articulate the deliverance that God has provided for us. That means that as this generation, now we need to regularly celebrate and commemorate what God has done for us. This is why we want to build worship services that hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ every week. You've heard me say this before, well, why would we sing like today, Amazing Grace for like the thousandth time in our lifetime? You know, we, we sing this song a lot. Why are we gonna sing about the cross again? We know we're saved by grace. It's because you need to understand the cross again. You need to be reminded of God's deliverance again and again and again and again. We need to make sure that God's deliverance is held high and it's held out in front of us so that we can see it, rejoice in it, be reminded of it so that we know him and serve him and so that the next generation can do the same. One of the things that you notice here in the passage of God's people abandoning the Lord is that when they failed to know him, they did not just become practical atheists. Their failure to know him led to their replacement of him. Friends, when we become those who abandon the Lord, we do not become those who simply are satisfied worshiping nothing. There's no such thing as a real atheist. We all worship something. We don't simply walk away from God. What we do is we walk away from God and we replace him with something else. 
And that's exactly what God's people did. They became idolaters. The next generation of Israelites had not just forsaken God, they replaced God with other gods. Baal and Asherah here in this example, the fertility gods of the Canaanites. If you were to read and study up on what these gods did, you would understand why these gods appealed to their flesh. They were fertility gods. That means that as they were worshiped, quote unquote, they were being worshiped so that fertility would happen in the land and that meant in the, in the garden, in the animals, and in the people. And one of the practices of this kind of Baal worship would be that men would go to a Baal temple and engage in sacred prostitution, trying to encourage the gods to do the same so that fertility could rest upon the land. You say, that's horrible. Well, that's exactly what God's people were now engaging in. One generation removed. They don't just simply avoid knowing God, they replace him with what appeals to their flesh. Friends, it is true that other gods, little g, make, and, and you, can, you, could, you could say other gods, little g, and the world and its system is alluring in its promise. It's attractive. That's why we have so many people that are bought, buying into its promises and lies. The only problem is that all the other gods and all of what the world promises will prove false and cannot fulfill what it promises. I mean, the world and all of its little gods, all of the little things that drive our, our atten- for our attention, they, they have a lot that is attractive to our depraved hearts. They're, they're, there's just, it's just true. Self-autonomy, become progressive, Define your own truth, pursue pleasure at all costs. There's no limits, just be who you wanna be. Grab your own pronoun. Forget he and she, just do your own pronoun today. I mean, it's just unlimited what the world and its gods will say to you that's so attractive. It just kind of builds you up and makes you king of the world. Maybe you find yourself here today and you, maybe you think, as you think about this, maybe you think, well, I find myself being more attracted to those kinds of things. My heart's being allured by, by, by the world and its promises and the gods of this world. Friends, the world makes so many promises. False gods make so many promises that they cannot fulfill. Perhaps you found yourself, even as you sit here today, Maybe you're here out of kindness for some family member or some relative or some friend. But maybe you find yourself sitting here today having been allured by the world and its promises, having found that that what the world offers and what the the gods of this world provide is so much more attractive than what God has said. Maybe you find the words of the serpent in the Garden of Eden quite appealing. Did did God actually say? Friends, I would simply warn you that while those temptations might be strong and it might feel right and it might feel good, even freeing, in the end, you will only find misery and emptiness. 
could be here that could be that you're here today and you're you're clearly not a Christian. You would you would say, I'm not a Christian, I'm just here, I'm kind of just checking things out, or whatever reason you're here, we're glad you're here. But you would say, I'm not I'm probably not a Christian. Friend, I would just ask you, how satisfying was the world in 2015 to you? How faithful was the world to keep its promises to you? Promises of success and pleasure and self-fulfillment, how's that going? And you may say, well, it's going quite well. And I would like to check in maybe next year, the year after, if the Lord tarries. It will not fulfill what you think it can. And you see the road of abandonment as a subtle but costly road. It feels right, it's easy to pursue, but do not buy the lie that it presents. Remember all that God has accomplished and find your hope and your identity in Christ. Friends, the consequences of abandoning the Lord are not just painful, they are deadly. The situation with Israel did not grow any better. In fact, things would grow from bad to worse over time and yet God was still gracious. In verses 16 through 19, you find really what's an overview of how judges would go. There's this ongoing cycle that develops through judges. The people would sin, be in rebellion against God. God would be angry. The people would be convicted. God would raise up a judge to come deliver them, bring them out of the hands of plunderers, and they would serve the judge while that judge was alive. Then the judge would die, and the people would go right back to evil, except this time much worse than they were to begin when they began with that judge. And that happens time after time again. Rebellion, anger, repentance, rescue, and return. On and on we go, and it just continues to grow worse. Notice in light of all that's going on here that you see the character of God on display. I don't want you to miss this. In the midst of their failure, God's character shines brightly. I want you to see this because you can come away, this is just so negative. I don't want you to see this just as, I want you to see it as a warning. Let this be a warning to you, but yet at the same time, let God stand out in this text as glorious and beautiful to you. Look at what happens. Verse 12, verse 14, and verse 15, we're told that they provoked the Lord and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunders. The hand of the Lord was against them. Not a good place to be. After all, if you had God fighting for you up until now, that's a good place to be. Now God said, nope, I'm gonna be fighting against you. Not a good place to be. God was angry, but this was no knee-jerk reaction. It was not. He had warned them. You can go back to Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 through 17 and see this. He had warned them that if they did not listen to him, did not follow his commands, that he would hold them accountable. And so God's anger in judges is faithful anger. God doing exactly what he said he would do. It's not just faithful anger, it's loving anger. He could have just let them go. He could have just let them perish, let them, let them fall to the Canaanites and started fresh and new and been just in doing that. But he didn't. He loved them. He pursues them. In verse 16, you see this, this language of judgment and anger now balanced with grace and love. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Get this, 
God gives them over to plunderers, and now he raises up judges to deliver them from the plunderers. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the day of the judge. Four, this was the reason why he did this. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. By the time that we get to the end of chapter two and into chapter three, we see that, that a result of Israel's abandonment is that God shows grace and that he now uses the wicked people that are left in the land to actually now be judgment and disciplinary towards his people because he loved them. You could say it this way, the same hand that delivered them over to be plundered was the same hand that yet came to their rescue. As one commentator put it, the hand that is against them is nevertheless mysteriously for them. The very one who has every right to cast us out and to condemn us is the very one who stooped down to save us. Friends, God is a God of grace. Even when we have abandoned him, even when we have forsaken him, even when we have pursued the world and its gods and all that is attractive and we have turned our backs upon him, God will respond in righteous anger, but he is a God of grace who will be moved and has been moved to pity for the sake of his people and for the glory of his name. He is still willing to stoop down and forgive. You know, as you go throughout this book, you will see God's relentless grace on display time and time again in the midst of God's people being wickedly unfaithful. You know, when we get to the end in April, whenever the Lord permits, when we get to the end of Judges, there will be a lingering dissatisfaction with the end. Because Judges does not produce a deliverer who would ultimately deliver the people of God permanently. Judges is a book that is marked time after time again by temporary judges, temporary deliverers, temporary rescuers, and they die. And the people of God go right back to where they were. And that judge is raised up and, and that judge dies. Judges does not answer the question finally and fully. It only lays the foundation for one who would come, one who would deliver his people, but not just temporarily. He would do it finally and fully through his blood on a cross. And he would seal it there and he would defend it through his glorious resurrection as he has promised to come again to bring us to himself. And his name is Jesus. The one who can, the one who does fully and permanently deliver people for his sake. Praise his name. Trust in him and serve him because he is great and he is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about this word and 
the history of your people. Lord, we look at these stories, they seem so far removed historically from us, but yet there is so much that we find that resonates in our hearts. So much that we have in common because of the reality and presence of sin in our lives, Lord. God, would you help us to see that there's not a person in this room, including me, not a person in this room that is beyond abandoning you. Father, would you help us to stop and feel the weight of that right now? Lord, we began this service with a passage that spoke of you as our keeper. And we are so thankful that you are a God who keeps because we cannot keep ourselves. We are incapable, unable of doing that. And so Lord, would you help us to see you for who you are? Would you help us, Lord, to see the the ways that we go astray? God, when we, when, we, when we fall short of being distinct, when we, when we look more like the world than we do like Jesus, would you call us to, for, to, to, to repent? God, would you help us to see that as this generation, we have a responsibility to the next? God, help us not to shirk that responsibility. Help us not to fail as, as just being concerned with our own lives and not with the lives of those who come after us. God, would you forgive us as parents and grandparents where when you have failed, we know we have. Lord, help us not to leave here just overwhelmed with guilt, but Lord, renewed in motive and in grace to pursue our kids, our grandkids with a loving passion. And Father, I pray that we would not fail to know you in a saving way. Help us not to be a people who just know about you, but God, that we would be a people who know you and walk with you and serve, with, serve you and, and fulfill those things that you've called us to. God, you know our hearts, you know where they are, you know the people in this room by name, you know the number, the hairs on our head. God, would you search our hearts now and would you move in our lives to bring us to repentance? Would you bring us to obedience? Would you bring us to faithfulness? And Lord, if we're here today and we're not a believer, would you help us to realize that only through Jesus Christ can we be fully and finally, finally delivered? Help us to cling to him in faith. God, would you have your way in our hearts by your grace and for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing and let's respond as God calls us to today.